Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of Well-Lit Path. Uh, This week we get to dive into another short chapter, Psalm 11. Uh, There's a lot packed into this little chapter, but first, how's your week been? We just returned from camp, and man, what a blessing it was. Uh, To see lives changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, it just, it never ceases to impress and amaze me. Uh, I know quite a few life-changing decisions were made at camp this year, and I couldn't help but challenge myself, what am I ready to change? And, you know, my prayer is that the Lord continues to use me, but how can I let him use me more? Are there things that I'm afraid to commit to because I'm afraid of what he'll require? I have to remind myself, as we've seen so many times in the Psalms already, you know, he's been faithful to me in the past, and he'll continue to be so. You know, as David brings us into his writing chamber in Psalm 11, we see he's once again dealing with some persecution in his life. You know, for the man that God referenced as the apple of his eye, which just means a very close and very loved friend, David sure seemed to deal with a lot. Why do we think that God called him that? Because in David's troubles, even those he caused for himself, he always brought it back around to turning to God. That's all God really wants from us, continually pursuing that unbroken fellowship with him. And maybe if we pursue that a little more, we'd be able to echo David in this psalm when he says, Psalm 11, verse 1, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird into your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold and his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked in him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Do you put your trust in the Lord? Have you put your trust in the Lord? It'd be difficult to continually put your trust in the Lord if you've never even met him to begin with. If we have no relationship with him, we can have no trust in him. And without that trust, maybe we would flee like a bird into the mountains where we can't be touched or pursued. How can we know him to put trust in him? Believe on the Son of God and you will be saved. It's not complicated. If you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you'll have heard that we're all sinners. Some of us are saved by grace. We were saved by grace the moment we recognized we were sinners and acknowledged that the only way to a relationship with God was to trust in the sacrifice of his son on our behalf. That's the blessed grace he showed us that allows us to experience the mercy he so freely gives. And this is how you start the relationship. 
And once you have the relationship, it can never be forfeited. It's eternally secure. That first step of trust continues to establish trust, and it builds and builds. This emboldens us so that when trouble comes or trials, when we feel attacked or anxious or worried, we can say, in the Lord, I put my trust. How can anyone say to me, fly away to the mountains like a bird? I don't need to run. As we looked at in Psalm 10, we're an offensive army, not a defensive force. Let the world run and hide from me, from us, because we're coming for them. We're coming for their hearts. We're coming for their souls. We're coming to share the gospel and rally them to the cause of Christ. Back down, run away. There's no way. As Paul would say thousands of years later, God forbid the devil and his minions better run from us because we're coming to take back the culture. We're coming after those that were once theirs. I don't care if the wicked ready their spiritual weapons to strike at the hearts of the righteous. They plan, they scheme, they systematically root out their opposition. Well, I say let's take the fight to them. Let's approach it with the same tenacity and let's get together a battle plan. Hold on. We really don't need to get together a battle plan. We have one. Here in the Psalms, here in our Bible, a battle plan laid out for us is there that can shatter the arrows of the wicked that they want to aim at us and the arrows that they let fly at us. You know, they hide in our televisions. They hide in our children's cartoons. A close friend and a fellow church member of mine tells a story of how he was once in a position to be a part of a Christian children's show. It wound up not working out due to the LGBTQ plus themes that the industry wanted to sew into the program. Wrap your mind around that. They wanted to sew the agenda of homosexuality into a Christian kid's show. And my grandson loves watching Mickey Mouse and, and other cartoons, but... There's a cartoon that my daughter rightfully stopped allowing him to watch because they started talking about two male dinosaurs who wanted to have an egg together. I tell you, it's everywhere. They're trying to indoctrinate our children in the infancy stage. I would say to our parents, carefully guard the hearts and eyes of your children because they're not just there. They hide in our media and they hide in our curriculum. Open up a social media platform and see what agendas they're pushing. The advertisements are not only tailored specifically for you, they prey on you as well. I'd ask the men out there, have you ever been on any social media platform and you've never looked at anything sexual or explicit on your phones, Yet that social media platform tries to fill your feed with half-clothed women or here use this sexual enhancer. You know, if we're seeing targeted ads like this, how do you think these platforms are going after our kids, after our wives? I was listening to another podcast the other day where they were talking about books in our school libraries. 
and curriculum that explicitly detail the act of having sex and everything that happens within the act itself. And this book is targeted at third graders. They're coming after us, and we need to be very wary of what is happening. You know, you know what? Strike that. Let's not be wary. Let's be aware. And let's prepare ourselves and our kids, moms and dads, to combat this type of trash. You know, I've always wondered and tried to understand why we're surprised that the world is heading in the direction it is. Are we really surprised that the wicked, our culture, is pushing humanism and all of its ugly religiosity on every facet of our being? Are we surprised that it's proselytizing our children, our adults? Why are we surprised? Sinners sin and want to help and enable more sinners to sin? Well, what a shock. Are we just as surprised every time we sin? Oh, I'm not perfect. God's forgiven me for that sin. Well, you're 100% correct. Now imagine your life if you didn't know God and tell me that you'd be that much different than the world around you. That you wouldn't be drinking the Kool-Aid of humanism and self-indulgence. Of course they're going to aim arrows at us. They can't stand to see that the life that we're living can be done and that it can be joyous and filled with hope in a God who loves us rather than us just searching and searching and searching. So are we really that surprised? And as they destroy the very foundations of a God-instilled morality, of the understanding that the Creator created perfectly, what can we do? How do we push back? How do we equip ourselves for the fight? Are we just supposed to let them take the foundations? I think back when the children of Israel arrived back in Jerusalem after its destruction in the Old Testament. They were content to just live there in the city among the ruins. They were just glad to be home. The foundations of the temple were still there. The foundations of the walls were still there but they weren't building them up. And then they were attacked. They were pillaged. They were ashamed of the state of their city and they were mocked by the nations around them. The foundations were there. Why were they not building? Well, they were operating from a place of defeat and everyone around them knew it. And then Nehemiah heard of their plight and he wept. He mourned, he fasted, and he prayed, and he pleaded with God to send someone to build upon the foundations. And Nehemiah wound up surrendering to God and came up with a plan and went himself to rally the people to build up the foundations. So what can the righteous do? Build up the foundations. And if the foundations even are destroyed, rebuild them. Build upon them. Let's get after it. Put in the work. The Christian life wasn't meant to be armchair quarterbacked. It wasn't meant to be run from our recliners, our couches, our pews. It was meant to be lived out in our workplace, in our community, in our classrooms, in the halls of our higher learning. 
in our hospitals, in our service industries. It was meant to be taken to the battlefront of our courtrooms and our cities. It was meant to be bold. It was meant to be loud because it was meant to be a battle cry. Our faith isn't shattered if the foundations are destroyed. If society falls, we stand on a firm foundation. Moral foundations can shift, right and wrong may be redefined by culture, but only God determines the absolutes of right and wrong. His definitions are unchanging, as should ours be. When the foundations are destroyed, rebuild on the true foundation. What better way to assault the strongholds of the wicked than to have a stronghold with which to launch from? So no, we won't flee like birds. We won't retreat into our churches. We won't hunker down and wait it out. Why should we? We have the greater power. We're not supposed to fear the one that can destroy just our body. So what do we have to fear? Are we afraid to speak the name of the one who saved us in the workplace? In the supermarket? Are we afraid to sing his praises in Walmart as we're listening to our worship playlist on our phones? Well, why not sing along? Why not be peculiar? You know, if Target can blast the front of their stores with all manner of wickedness promoting merchandise, can't we walk in singing, Our God is greater, our God is stronger, God, you are higher than any other? Well, Tom, what if we get kicked out? I challenge you to take the thought process of, go ahead, kick me out. Christ said they hated him. They're going to hate us too. And if we're not hated by this world, that should cause us to ask ourselves, what are we doing wrong? Do we think that God isn't watching? Well, he knows. He sits in his holy temple. He sees all from the throne of heaven. His eyes behold, his eyes capture all of it. We, we seem to think that God is only in the places that are bright and shiny and well lit. Unfortunately, God's also in the darkest of places where the most evil deeds are done. The dens of this despair and the seediest, most vile places you can imagine. God is there too. And he looks at it all with a studying eye. Spurgeon adequately points out in this passage that all mankind, when examining an object, will hold it up and squint at it a little. God squints too, and he sees to the marrow of the wicked. He knows their dark and evil thoughts, and he'll hold them accountable for even their thoughts. Now, on the flip side of that, he sees our thoughts too. Do we not think that he examines our lives just as closely as he does those that do not live for him? Or the scarier thought is, does he examine our lives even closer than theirs? And if he were to examine our lives with that kind of scrutiny, what would he see? Would he see that we may be right to flee in front of the opposition? 
Maybe we're not close enough in relationship to him to tap into the power that we have in him. And this is why our heart sometimes tells our souls to flee. It makes it difficult to stand with the righteous when we don't feel righteous. When we have some gnawing sin in the background and we know our heart is hurting from it. As it eats at our hearts like a cancer, there's only one cure for the ailment. As we hold on to that sin, will we let it spread? Will we let it eat away at us? This is what the wicked do. This is why they draw their arrows and loose them at the escaping bird. Any chance to take us down, any chance to damage the cause of Christ. They're consumed, and they want us to be consumed as well. And in fleeing with our backs turned, we open ourselves up to exposure, and the armor we've been equipped with is not as effective. You know, it's better to turn and face the attempt to infect us. This is how we face the opposition, head on, armor forward, ready for the fight. Has he equipped us to be any less? When he tries us, when he searches our hearts, he finds righteousness. Not ours, but the righteousness of the blood the believer has been washed in. It's because of this righteousness, the righteousness of his son, that he moves past us and focuses in once more on the wicked. Would we give him a reason to pause? Is there something that we're holding on to? Can we hold up to his scrutiny? Well, we know that the wicked can't. The wicked that love to tear at their souls and the souls of others to pull all around them down into their pit of false hope and eventual dismay. Those that do violence, the intentional harm of those around them and with them, those are the people that the Lord God hates. He hates them. And it's only God who can love and hate at the same time. He loves the wicked soul, but he's at enmity he is the enemy with the one who chooses wickedness over grace time and time again. And what a great contrast. He loves, loves, loves those that choose him, and we get the benefit from every promise and every blessing we can find in his word. He even loves his enemies, but he cannot force grace on them. And because of this, they've made themselves his enemies. It's similar to when we see in the Old Testament that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. See, God didn't effectuate the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God presented Pharaoh with an ultimatum, and Pharaoh's love of wicked things caused his heart to harden against God's command. In essence, God's ultimatum caused Pharaoh to harden his heart because Pharaoh chose to be God's enemy. And the same is true with the wicked today. God says, here's the solution to your sin and your lack of hope for eternity. 
Here's my gift of grace to you to take freely. Woe to the sinner whose heart is hardened by their rejection of God's love and mercy. All they will experience in the end when they leave this life for eternity is snares. This is a calamity. Bad things await the unrepentant sinner in the hereafter. A lake of fire that burns forever and ever. As Revelation 20.15 tells us that eventually, those who die without a personal relationship of Christ, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. And the preceding verse informs us that this is the second death. A horrible tempest will be the portion of their cup. Well, what in the world does that mean? Imagine dying of thirst in the desert. In the distance, you see an oasis full of water. You're dying of thirst, and water is your only hope. You crawl, drag, claw your way to the oasis. You've held a canteen for the last two days, clutched in your claw-like grip. Your hands burnt dry, cracking. You dip the canteen into what you know is the water that will grant life. You lift it to your lips, and instead, a strong wind comes up and blows the sand and the dust right out of your canteen. See, there was no water at all. You put your hope in a fable and an image of something that was, that you thought was real, but it wasn't. And as the horrible, tempestuous wind that grates the sand across your body like burning embers, you realize you should have taken the water offered to you a day and a half ago. There was a man who said he was living water and that you would never thirst again. Here, have it for free. If only your suspicion hadn't gotten the best of you. Never thirst again? There's no way. Living water? What does that even mean? How could anything free have been good and effective? Your last breath is a sigh of regret, but regret gets you nothing. Christ gives you everything. You chose to make yourself his enemy and now he can't do anything for you and you realize that with horror as the rattle of death escapes your lips. Hey, Christian, aren't you glad you accepted the water when you did? As David closes, he reminds us that the righteous Lord loves 
righteousness. And where does he see righteousness? Well, in the born-again believer, he sees the righteousness of his son only, apart from all of our shortcomings and failings. And better yet, not apart from them, when he looks at us, what he sees is devoid of them as if they had never existed. So he turns his face to us. He looks on us fully. We can be in his presence and come before his throne. The same throne he sees the wicked from, we can approach and talk to him at, converse with him. We get to hear him instruct us and speak to us through his word. He's made us upright. We choose at a point in our past to let go of our desire to be his enemy and to bask in the glow of his marvelous, matchless grace. But do we share it? Really share it? When was the last time we spoke of his grace to someone? The best way to speak of his grace to anyone is to speak of his grace and blessing in our own life. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to witness to an unsaved person. You don't have to quote every verse. You don't even need your Bible with you. The gospel is as simple as Jesus born, died, buried, and risen. How else to convey that truth than to tell the story of how he found you, made you a new creature from a person who was dead in their sins, and together you killed the old man and raised a new and he raised a new man to life in the power of his eternal resurrection. You want an example of the gospel? It's you. When you tell your story, it's not your story. It's a story of grace greater than all our sin. Tell the story of Jesus by telling of the story of him in your life. Be bold in your faith. Stop trying to fly away to a haven of rest earlier than God ever intended. He'll be our haven in the end, but for now we must contend for the faith. Share the gospel with as many as you can. Tell of every time he's worked in your life. Tell of his blessings in your life and watch him use you to reach people with his gospel in your story. There's some rich truths in this little psalm. What's your story? I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for walking with me a little while as we read the word together. Won't you join me again next week and we'll walk just a little further? If you like the podcast, go ahead and hit that follow button. If you have any questions about salvation or general podcast questions, uh, reach out to us via email at podcast at lakeworthbaptist.org. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook by looking for LWBC underscore publications.